Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. New rental laws are expected to come into force in Victoria next month after they were delayed due to COVID-19. The changes include over 130 reforms that mandate minimum standards for things like a working stove and appropriate lighting, while tenants are also able to make small modifications without permission from their landlord. To help explain the significance of these changes, we're joined on the line by Professor of Housing and Social Policy at Swinburne University of Technology, Wendy Stone. Wendy, thanks so much for being with us today on Triple R. Oh, good morning. Thanks for the opportunity. And before we get to, I guess, some of the most significant changes, I wonder if you could just remind us um, and sort of take us back a little while um, as to how these reforms came about. Yeah, no problem. Um, I think um, it's actually ta- it's worth taking um, uh, just very briefly, actually, an even bigger step back. Um, if um, that's possible, mm. let's. I think it's it's um, it's great to start with what we're. Uh, really talking about here, which is uh, both um, the home, uh, we're talking about a sense of home, a real home for people living in the rental sector, but also security for people who are investing in the rental sector. So if we take a bigger step back, uh, Australia after the Second World War was really built into a country that facilitated that sense of home and security through home ownership. And, you know, as we all know, that became the great Australian dream, uh, that 1950s suburban block, and a way of uh, investing in our homes and our lifestyles throughout our working years for most people into retirement so that people at the end of uh, of their working um, sort of life or those, that sort of age around uh, 60 really lived in security in later life. But as we all know, um, since around the turn of this century and just prior, we had that really high frenzy of uh, investification, we call it, and it's sort of intensification of financing in the, the housing market in Australia where the first homeowners grant was introduced to try to help people um, really up against uh, deregulation of the market that enabled a lot of investment to happen and a lot of people, particularly younger generations, are priced out of the home ownership market. So this gets us to a situation where over the last uh, uh, you know, 20 years, we've really been witnessing a great increase in inequality in, uh, in a range of um, housing, home, but also um, life chances opportunities between Australians who own property or are purchasing property and those who don't. And what the Victorian government has done here is really a long-term process to uh, try to bring into a better balance some of the conditions um, in which all Victorians can live. And this this is really a leader uh, nationally. Victoria is one of the very leaders in this field, but all states and territories now are looking at shoring up the tenancy uh, regulations because... What we have now is a situation in which around a third of Australians live in private rental housing. Uh, Rental housing is not a short-term transition anymore to home ownership, but it's really a place in which a lot of people are living. And uh, we have many, many Australian children now growing up in rental conditions. We have elderly people living in private rental housing. And we really need to make this a secure place. It's not um, a skint in a share house like it might once have been for people. It's, it really must be a secure place um, in which people can conduct productive and, and safe, caring lives so that our whole society can function well. It's good um, to have that sort of overview, Wendy, of, of this sort of principle, I guess, behind why we need rental regulations and new ones because in amongst that sort of culture of um, well, the great Australian dream, as you put it, to own your own home, the reality is, as you say, that a third of people um, are renting at any one time and for all different kinds of reasons and maybe part of the culture in Australia has 
being that those rental properties do not need to be quality, um, that the owners of them don't necessarily keep them in good working order and they're not healthy or necessarily safe. Is, so is it that the Victorian government is trying to push a culture change here as well as bring in, as part of bringing in new rental regulations? Yeah, absolutely. There is definitely a culture change through practice-led um, change in the tenancy reform. So in, in making sure we, we do develop secure pathways, um, there are many innovations that are happening. There are sort of rent-to-buy schemes that are going on. There are sort of different pathways that governments are looking at across the country. But one of the important pieces that we haven't been good at in Australia is actually just making sure that rental conditions are adequate and livable and basically decent. Um, so this is um, a really uh, quite considerable attempt by the Victorian government, a step in the right direction in this. And in 2018, one of the first planks in the picture was the establishment of what's called the um, Residential Tenancies uh, Commissioner. And this is an office within the government that's funded by the Victorian government and a real oversight of tenancy change. And uh, the tenancy reforms, as you've mentioned, are considerable. They really focus on just, um, I guess, a number of key platforms that were introduced in the Tenancies Act in 2018. And these were uh, due to be implemented in July last year, but because of the COVID pandemic, they've been delayed now and it will all be introduced in full by the end of March. So the 29th of March is the date that we're looking at. And what they basically introduce are the opportunity for tenants to uh, negotiate with landlords and real estate agents uh, longer-term leases. So around five-year leases is, is the ultimate goal for longer-term leases. Um, and that also means that landlords can negotiate um, with real estate agents and try to seek uh, longer-term tenants. It's not all a one-way street. I think we really need to remember that it can be a real win-win here for investors as well as for homemakers. Um, it, and speaking of home, um, a lot of the reforms are around how people can actually make a home. So the ability, um, for example, to put in a, you know, lay down a vegetable garden, um, put a picture up, um, have a pet. And uh, these are the types of uh, rituals and routines and, and lifestyle factors that we know make home in the Australian context. So from the um, end of March, uh, tenants, and tenants will be able to uh, ask their landlords or real estate agent uh, to have a pet, for example, and there has to be very, very reasonable grounds for a landlord to refuse that request, and that needs to go through VCAT. But, you know, Wendy, I wonder, I mean, some of the stuff that really stood out to me in the, the rental regulations and the reforms at Fort is not just these kinds of, as you say, um, uh, abilities to, to create a home and, and have your companion pet and put picture hooks on the walls and things like that that have been denied many tenants for, for, for a very long time, but just basic stuff like ensuring the stove works, ensuring there's a oh. food preparation area, ensuring there's a sink in the kitchen. I mean, these... Um, things that a lot of people might a, assume were a lock already on the required. door yeah. like these are the things that people would assume unless you've been renting or unless you've been in a, a kind of a dodgy rental you just assume a part of what you get when you're paying someone to to live in a property but they haven't been there so are these hard fought or have these been kind of pushed back against from from landlords or, or real estate sector or these really um, have been accepted as necessary because there are so many properties that really are full of mould and not fit to live in. Yeah, I, I think uh, there has been some considerable debate um, leading up to these reforms and, um, you know, dialogues between the key actors, um, the Real Estate Institute Victoria, Property Council, um, the Victorian government, and the, the, the reforms came after a very long and deep, good con consultation process. But what they did show absolutely fundamentally, the material aspects of rental housing um, have not been good. Um, on the whole, um, most Australian housing meets reasonably good standards um, on the international um, sort of comparative stage, but because a lot of uh, older stock basically falls into the rental market, into the private rental market, 
And also new housing uh, has been built. If it's built for investors, sometimes it's built to a very low standard of insulation, of, of uh, noise protection, of the quality of the, um, you know, the, the stoves, the, the plumbing, etc. What this is, is a game changer. Uh, so rental providers have a duty now to ensure that the rental standards are, are met at a minimum level, which uh, this is a huge, even though it sounds like it should have been something that's been done years ago, this is a huge step forward to livability. Speak- uh, we know that renters are much more subject to living in unhealthy housing conditions um, with mould, with um, uh, appliances that don't, um, enable them to live well. So we have energy poverty um, issues as well in the, the sort of you know middle income to to low income parts of the rental market. Um, I, I and should, so, should just sorry, yeah. sorry to jump in, Wendy. I should remind listeners we're speaking with um, Professor Wendy Stone, who's a professor of housing and social policy at Swinburne University of Technology, all about the rental reforms um, that are set to become law here in Victoria next month. And I mean, it's sort of an interesting time to be discussing this as well, given that um, you know we know some of those uh, sort of emergency payments, like JobKeeper and the JobSeeker um, coronavirus supplement, are, are due to be wound back and, and stopped very soon, and we. We know also in terms of um, residential tenancies in Victoria that there were emergency measures introduced such as a, you know, a ban on evictions when people couldn't pay their rent as a result of um, sort of coronavirus inflicted hardship and, and um, sort of restricting rental increases as well. How do you think sort of um, tenants will fare as those types of emergency payments and measures are wound back um, more or less as these new laws are coming to effect in Victoria? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it is really important um, just for listeners to to make that distinction between these two sets of um, interventions at the moment. One is um, the intervention around rental standards and tenancy mm. reform, which has been long, a long time coming, and which will be enduring. Um, if anything, it may be you know progressed in future. Um, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, and then on top of that, due to the coronavirus, as you mentioned, we've had an evictions moratorium. Um, um, and we've had the rental relief grant, which is um, has been administered by Homes Victoria and uh, Consumer Affairs Victoria. So the rental relief grant at the moment um, really assists people who've had income affected directly by COVID. Um, and uh, that's due to... Um, end at the end of March. We were just waiting and, see- and seeing, really watching that space as to whether that may be extended. It was, it has already been extended out um, as, you know, the government realised that the pandemic um, impacts were so great. But what we already know is that due to um, international students not coming into Australia, my other migrant, working migrants, not coming back into Australia... Uh, and also the cost of uh, living in smaller apartments around gig economy jobs. We have very high, rake, high vacancy rates at the moment in the inner city area of Melbourne and we have very low vacancy rates, uh, almost record low vacancy rates in regional Victoria. So what um, uh, the, the sort of situation going forward is an interesting one in which landlords uh, are affected by income reductions in the pandemic and tenants, if anything, are possibly in a slightly stronger position than normal within the market context to negotiate um, around uh, rental reductions if they're still needed, uh, to be approaching Consumer Affairs Victoria and Tenants Victoria for assistance and I'd strongly recommend to anybody in that situation who needs support to visit the Consumer uh, Affairs Victoria website where there's a range of great information, really accessible, and uh, numbers to call for help. Uh, We're pretty much out of time, Wendy. Sorry to to jump in. I just wanted to ask one last thing. And, um, I mean, another part of the raft of new rental regulations that have come in, I understand, is regards to, you know, again... Essentially, privacy and rights that you ha- you don't need to disclose um, if you've had a claim on a bond or things like that in the past. If if you're a tenant, and also this idea that um, and it's sort of extraordinary that. I- happens but that people have to provide credit or bank statements detailing daily transactions to a real estate agent or, or, or a landlord potentially as part of that um, setting up an agreement and I mean I know this 
someone who this happened to that they, you know, basically shouted a whole lot of friends at a, at a, at a pub and, and got the money in cash but put it on her card and then it was held against her um, when applying for a house um, because it looked like she was exceeding her income, which she wasn't. And I think that sort of thing seems like a big step forward. And I think just quickly, um, do you see that also being game-changing, like the quality of, of some of the, the housing um, hopefully going up under these new regulations? Yeah, definitely it will be. I think that's a step, what you're describing there is a basic dignity that's trying to be created in this tenancy reform. Um, And we'll see over the next couple of years, there's going to need to be a real culture shift in the the brokers, the mediators, the real estate agency industry and property industry to support the intent of the Victorian changes, which are by and large around home security, housing conditions and uh, better equity and dignity for for tenants as well as for landlords. Yeah, well, it is great to know that these laws are finally coming into effect a little bit late, but, um, but very much still needed by the sounds of things. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk through it all with us today on Triple R. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Professor uh, Wendy Stone there from the Swinburne University of Technology. She's a professor of housing and social policy. And a real change there with regards to um, rental rights and also power balances. And I think it is a big, I mean, look, we've had so much change, haven't we, um, over the past year. And I I think, um, yeah, this will be interesting how it goes forward. So much changing next month. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Bill Bertels is the China correspondent for the ABC and you might recall Bill was rushed home from his posting in China last September alongside his Australian Financial Review colleague Mike Smith and things had changed and it was no longer safe for him to report from there. Nevertheless, he continues to report on China for the national broadcaster and tomorrow night his foreign correspondent Hong Kong special called City of Fear will screen on ABC TV and uh, he's on the phone from need to tell us more about it and it's great to have you on Triple R Bill, welcome. Hi Carly and Dylan, nice to uh, talk to you. And uh, so where, where did you make this program Bill? Um, did it Was it filmed when you were still in China or is it something you've been working on since um, returning to Australia? Yeah, since coming back to Australia, unfortunately it's one of these COVID new world type things where we're trying to do, we have to do uh, foreign correspondent documentaries without leaving Australia. And it's pretty tough. You really need to rely on a very good local crew, which we were lucky enough to have in Hong Kong. But it just kind of gives you an idea of uh, just how serious things have become in Hong Kong that the local crew requested that we did not put their names in the credits at the end uh, because they were concerned there could be some sort of uh, legal or political pushback against them for uh, being involved in this documentary. And you've been following the pro-democracy movement there um, for some time, but I mean, particularly over the last couple of years as those, you know, protests and and images that were broadcast from um, 2019 were just, you know, so transfixing for audiences um, across the globe. What were you specifically looking into for this episode of of Foreign Correspondent, I guess at the particular juncture of, um, of tensions in Hong Kong? Yeah, so everything's changed there. And coronavirus is a temporary factor. If you remember how large those protests were a couple of years ago and how dramatic they were, uh, social distancing laws basically stopped protests from going ahead. And largely the uh, various protest groups have been respectful of that. But what's changed everything in the long term is the imposition of this new national security law that was imposed on Hong Kong last year without anybody in Hong Kong being able to even read it in advance. And that law, by Australian standards, is very draconian. It basically criminalises certain forms of political speech and action, and it even allows for people arrested under the new law to be sent to mainland China to be tried in courts uh, under the control of the Communist Party up there. So it has totally changed everything. And on the program, we're looking at just what is the effect? How much has Hong Kong changed for those involved in the protest movement? The answer is a lot. 
Yeah, and I was thinking about um, you making this program, Bill, and about the, you know, really looking at the sort of the safety and, and the dilemmas and, and of the Hong Kong activists after you yourself have experienced something of the fear they live with. Did that change um, your approach, I guess, or the, the way that you thought about um, the, the activism that is, is long-term there in Hong Kong? Well, I suppose for me the big difference has been that uh, in 2019 and right up until this new law was put in place, people I would regularly speak to were very open. People in Hong Kong who weren't even activists, people who were commentators, for example, were were quite media-friendly. And then after mid-2020, when the new law was in place, they just froze up. Self-censorship was rife. And I know from working up in mainland China for many years that um, you have to protect your sources, you have to uh, be respectful of people who genuinely uh, are fearful um, that there may be repercussions. And so, for example, we had uh, one uh, relatively young guy who's a uh, sort of very local politician uh, who we interviewed and he spoke cautiously. He didn't really say anything too incriminating, but he was later targeted in a series of arrests, uh, targeting uh, pro-democracy figures in the city, and then his people said to us, look, can you please take him out of your documentary? Uh, We're just worried if he's seen to be talking to the foreign media that they might cook up a foreign collusion charge as a result. So, of course, we took him out of the program and he's not mentioned anywhere. So things like that have really changed the landscape. And, and we saw last month um, more than 50 people were arrested for sort of organising and participating in unofficial primaries, some of them former lawmakers as well. So not sort of, um, I guess, you know, typical activist types necessarily, but people who had very much been um, willing to or, or had previously participated in sort of the, the formalised um, political system in Hong Kong. What's your sense of the ways in which pro-democracy activists are going about their um, approaches, I suppose, in the face of the the functioning of the national security law and what's happening to those who are sort of um, acting in these sorts of ways and and, and holding demonstrations or events that might in some way go against um, Beijing's interests? Yeah, well, it's full on. I mean, it's absolutely full on. The guy I was talking about, he was targeted in those raids. and was 53 or 54 people. And the reason they were rounded up and arrested at the crack of dawn was because they held a primary election, very similar to what you have in the US when the Democrats or the Republicans hold a primary to work out who their candidates are going to be. They literally organised a primary election for the pro-democracy bloc. They all got together. 600,000 people in the middle of COVID turned up and cast a ballot, which in a city of 7 million is huge. It's not a real election. It's just a primary. Uh, Anyway, and they all got rounded up and raided and arrested. And the government justification for that was... These people were gathering together, organising with the intent of winning a majority in the local Hong Kong parliament, and they may have wanted to use that majority majority to stifle the government's bills and to to block government legislation, and we now regard that as political subversion. Mm. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's really... It's absolutely the opposite to how a democracy is supposed to work. You know, basically saying the opposition's not allowed to win a majority and oppose anything. So, um, you know, those people obviously have gone to ground after they were arrested. Uh, very few of them are talking out. Their passports were confiscated. They have been bailed, but they're all under investigation. And then you've got others, for example, every year in Hong Kong, they hold this massive Tiananmen Square vigil. It's huge. It's been getting bigger in recent years. It went ahead in the middle of COVID, uh, police, of course, didn't give it authorization because of social distancing rules. Uh, but uh, the organisers were very careful to uh, show that people were trying to abide by the regulations. Anyway, just last week, we saw 26 people, including big figures like uh, Joshua Wong, uh, were either arrested or re-arrested. Some of these people are already in jail uh, and charged with a legal assembly for that protest. So it doesn't matter if it's in the parliament or on the streets. Uh, they're just clamping the space that people have to dissent. Bill Burtis is with us. He's ABC's China correspondent. And speaking about um, the City of Fear special um, on Hong Kong that is screening tomorrow night as part of um, Foreign Correspondent. And, um, Bill, I mean, who could you then... Um, put on on the program screening tomorrow night? I mean, it just sounds like uh, finding people to to tell this really important story um, is challenging enough, but who could you actually show? 
Well, there are still some people willing to speak out, but the main one we spoke to is actually uh, a dual national Hong Kong Australian called Max. And he was very forthright. He's a very sort of low-profile figure in a way. He's, you know, quite young. But he was very forthright in what he said to us uh, in, in his hope to uh, continue the pro-democracy fight. He's actually on the more radical side of things. He actually leans towards this sort of idea of independence in one form or another. All of these things now are basically criminal under the national security law. But the reason he was so open and willing to speak with us is because he was one of the Hong Kongers weighing up the choice of whether to stay or go. And I, he basically made this choice that I'm going to keep being an activist and that means I have to leave Hong Kong and probably can never go back. So we do still see people who are willing to stick their necks out, but it comes at a huge cost. In his particular case, having to leave his home city where he's grown up, where his parents and his family are, uh, so, as I said, you know, the, the pool of people willing to talk is becoming more and more limited. We also interviewed Joshua Wong, the activist, uh, but five days after we interviewed him, he was thrown in jail. Uh, not because of our interview, just because of other reasons. So, it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty, I've got to say, it, 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 you make these programs, and this one was particularly tough because so many people, nearly everybody, nearly actually, to be honest, everybody we spoke to, bar one, was either exiled, thrown in jail, or arrested and charged or under investigation of something. Uh, but the one who wasn't uh, was somebody who is a pro-Beijing, pro-government supporter. Now, her take on it is, look, Hong Kongers just have to realise that we're part of China. We have to accept some restraints on our liberties. Uh, and these restraints are all very reasonable. Um, you, shouldn't, you can still do your protest. You can still say whatever you want online, just don't say that you want Hong Kong independence, don't, don't accept foreign money, don't collude with the Americans, and you'll be fine. That's, that's, you know, the tank of the people who are kind of welcoming these changes in Hong Kong. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you've outlined a whole range of ways um, in which it's sort of, you know, tricky to cover what's happening over there, obviously due to the, the pandemic, but also the fact that you sort of had to come back to Australia from China out of concerns um, for your safety. And then there's, of course, the ethical considerations of, you know, broadcasting these interviews with people who may potentially be put in harm's way as a result of that. What concerns do you have about the quality of information sort of down the track we might be able to receive from, uh, you know, places like Hong Kong? but also, I guess, the, the mainland in China as well, given that there aren't as many journalists, um, foreign journalists in particular, able to cover issues accurately? Yeah, I just think we're going into a period of history where the availability of quality information in Hong Kong, about, uh, in China, sorry, about what's really going on will become uh, more and more limited. And it's, it's not just because there are fewer and fewer journalists there, you also have uh, journalists who are on the ground, unable to really interview anybody in positions of power. The access to people has really dried up. It was never great, but it's worse now than it was even five years ago. So the result will be um, quality information about what's really going on in China, what's you know really happening at the outset of the coronavirus pandemic. Or take, for example, people are always very sceptical about the numbers that... Uh, that uh, people present in China, that the government presents about coronavirus figures. Now, I was there for the first nine months of the pandemic. I believe the numbers are genuinely right. They might be, you know, off by a few or whatever, but on the ground, the containment is very, very good. But then you have all these sceptics outside of China who just don't trust anything about the place and believe that they're lying about the numbers. So mm. there's an example where just having journalists on the ground actually creates a positive effect for the Chinese government because you can see with your own eyes what's happening. But if you don't have those journalists there or if they don't have much access to people in positions of power, then, yeah, you're going to get kind of misinformation and assumptions about what's really going on and that's probably just the reality for the next, well, the foreseeable future. We don't have time in um, this morning to go into the Australia-China relationship uh, bill. I mean, there's a lot to say there, but I, I am curious what the current Australia Australian government approach is to people like Max that you mentioned, the dual national, um, and providing um, um, yeah a place for for people to leave Hong Kong and and reside here in Australia. What what is happening there? Is that um, a place of, of changing policies or, or, you know, what is our approach to people wanting to leave Hong Kong? Yeah, so the government has made a limited offer to Hong Kongers who are already here on 
student or work visas. They can extend, I believe it's for something like five years or so. There's a pathway to permanent uh, residency or citizenship. Um, it's a lot more limited than what the British government has done. The Brits really have done the most. They, they are offering uh, what's called a, a BNO passport. Basically, any Hong Konger born before 1997, the handover, them and their children are eligible to apply for these sort of quasi-British passports. Now, the Chinese government won't recognise them, so you'd still need a Hong Kong passport to get on the plane in Hong Kong airport and fly to Britain. But you could arrive in Britain. One of these passports would give you five years. Uh, basically, no strings attached. Five years, you could live there, uh, and then there's a pathway to citizenship. And in total, I reckon about 300,000 Hong Kongers over the next 10 or 20 years will probably take that offer up. Uh, but it could be as many as three or four million. So the Brits are really the ones rolling out the red carpet because of their colonial history in Hong Kong. Australia, it's a bit more limited, but there has been at least uh, some uh, sort of pathway options extended to Hong Kongers who are already here. Well, um, congratulations on continuing to, to cover these really important issues, even given the current difficulties, Bill. We um, look forward to catching the latest uh, foreign correspondent special this week and um, hope to catch you again on Triple R sometime in the future. That's great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you. Bill Bertels there, ABC's China correspondent. Apologies for the line there. It was kind of cutting in and out a little bit during that interview, but um, you can catch his special on foreign correspondent called City of Fear um, on Tuesday 9th of Feb. That's tomorrow at 8pm on ABC TV. And then, of course, it'll be on iView after then as well. Triple R. And Glyn Davis joins us now. He's CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which works to end intergenerational poverty. He was previously Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne and still holds a number of academic uh, positions at the ANU, Oxford, among others. And uh, Glyn has long focused on disadvantaged and entrenched poverty, which is the focus of an essay he has penned for Hachette's series called The On Series. And um, Glyn's essay is called On Life's Lottery. And we do enjoy talking to SAS on this program and it's great to have you there. Glenn, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much, Carly. It's a real delight to be here. And so you start the essay, and I think it's nice to start where the essay starts, um, um, recounting poet and novelist Ursula Le Guin's story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And I guess for those that don't know that story, it'd be really helpful for you to kind of tell it and, and let us know why you wanted to start there when talking about entrenched poverty here in Australia. Pleasure to do so. So, uh, Ursula Le Guin, um, who's a remarkable writer, I wrote this, it's a, it is a very short story, it's only a handful of pages. It describes this very happy city, Omelas, it doesn't really tell you much more about it, so it doesn't tell you where it is, um, or even what period it's set in. But Omelas is this prosperous, happy city, it's got a festival going on and lots of excitement. Um, but everybody in Omelas knows that somewhere in that city, buried under a building in, in a basement, an airless basement, is a small child who's been left there. And uh, they turn up and they replace sort of food and water for this, this kid, but otherwise completely neglected. And people from Omelas sometimes come and stand at the doorway and stare at this child and then walk away. And... The point of the story is to say the pro everybody in the town knows the prosperity of the town depends on this child being there. And is that a deal you're willing to make with yourself? And most of the citizens of Omelas, in the end, you know, however uncomfortable they feel, they'd rather have the good life than, than end the injustice to that child. But the point of the story is that there are some people for whom that's too much and they quietly walk away from the, the town, which is the, the title, those who walk away from others. Um, and it's just asking, how do you feel about injustice in your society and what level of injustice are you willing to live with in order to benefit from enjoy all the benefits of where you are? It's a powerful story precisely because it's, it's fiction. It's not claiming this is a, a precise description of our world. World, but it is reminding us that in the heart of most societies are injustices that we are willing to live with. 
And how successful have we been, Glenn, at really, I guess, confronting and, and talking about those injustices that have been, um, you know, very present um, in Australian society for many years? Is it the case that we sort of, you know, just sort of very readily and knowingly look away or, or do we not really put it front and centre of the national discussion as much as we should? Well, I guess it depends a little on your politics and it depends a little on what you think is important and it depends um, quite a lot on what you know about the society and one of the scary things about writing this essay was learning uh, some stuff that I didn't know and should have known. Um, So if I tell you that rates of poverty in Australia are slightly above OECD averages, you might be quite surprised. Um, We don't think of ourselves as a country that has significant poverty. We think of ourselves as a prosperous country. And indeed, taken overall, we are one of the most prosperous countries on the planet. But for between 10 and 12% of Australians, they live in what the Melbourne Institute calls extreme poverty. They live at less than, um, you know, a good deal less than a rate that allow you to have a reasonable life. And that's a big number. And it isn't a new phenomenon. Sometimes we talk as though inequality were growing. It isn't growing. It's been there the whole time. Um, that rate of how many Australians live in poverty is remarkably unchanged over a generation. It fluctuates, of course, and gets worse in bad times. But overall... We've been willing to live with that for a very long time, and that's why I started with the story of Omelas. Um, you know, where is this an acceptable outcome for a country that prides itself on the fair go and prides itself on everybody else, you know, on everybody having good opportunities? And that's a tough, um, that's a tough question to ask ourselves. Were you aware then, um, when writing the essay, how in well, how entrenched, but also that poverty um, really does. Um, it is intergenerational in its nature. And you say in the essay, you know, you quote, um, property inheritance in wealthy families um, is how that passes down. But in in households um, with disadvantage, it's the poverty that is inherited. Were you aware how um, true that was in Australia? Well, I think everyone in Australia knows there is some poverty in that. So I wasn't surprised by that. I've um, had the privilege in my previous role at the University of Melbourne of doing a lot of work uh, with Indigenous communities in Shepparton, so I had a fair sense of how some of that community lives and, and just what the rates of poverty are there. So it's not I, that I or anybody else hasn't seen it. It's, it's pretty clear. But what I guess I underestimated until I started looking at the research in detail is how entrenched that is, how intergenerational it is. But uh, the, the prospects of breaking out of poverty are remarkably low. And that's the thing I wasn't quite prepared for, that lots of people uh, find themselves in poverty and uh, they, their children will inherit from them basically difficult circumstance. We have this myth that's a sort of myth we share with lots of countries like ours, that you know, if you work hard and you're talented and you care, um, of course you'll break through and you'll rise. And we can all point to individuals where that's been true. But when you look at the aggregate data, which gives you a sense of what the chances are, if you are born into extreme poverty in Australia, there's an 80% or higher chance that you will die in extreme poverty. That is, that your circumstances won't improve through your whole lifetime. That's a pretty sobering set of stats that does start to take you into difficult territory around what sort of society have we set up here. And you talk about the, the notion of providing or sort of facilitating uh, more off-ramps for people to kind of, I guess, break that cycle of intergenerational poverty, knowing that it is, you know, quite difficult to, to sort of um, pull yourself or, or have the support available to pull you, pull you out of those types of circumstances. In what ways might that work? I mean, is it, is it about a kind of better coordination and collaboration between government policy, um, sort of private sector and, and the charity sectors? How do you see it being advanced in a much more kind of productive way than we have seen um, sort of over recent decades at least? Yeah, I think you captured it very nicely there. So um, if poverty were easy to solve, it would be gone. And if you could just solve it with money, it's not like we don't as a nation put money into poverty. It's not like we don't have a welfare system and a social security. I mean, these things are there and yet for 10 to 12% of the population, they don't lift them out of extreme poverty. Um, The best answers, uh, so the research tells us, and that's 
important here. The best answers are those that give people the chance to have the life they want rather than just assume that the transfer of money will somehow solve it, that you give you give money to someone. It, it, yes, of course you should, and yes, of course it matters, but it doesn't actually change their overall circumstances generally. So what you want to do is find ways of addressing what um, the the brilliant Indian economist, Amartya Sen, calls capabilities. You know, what is it that's lacking? Is it education? Is it health? Is it, you know, what's missing in the life that doesn't allow them um, to have agency and to, and to make a difference? Is it systemic racism? Is it, you know, like... Getting to those problems and those answers are all community-based. They're all about how do we address this together rather than, you know, how do we single you out as the sort of poor person and, and either make this your fault um, or imply that, uh, that it's something you're not doing. Um, whereas all of the answers we know all involve collective action, uh, work at a community level, and they're all long-term. There is no quick fix. Uh, we're speaking with Glenn Davis uh, about his essay called On Life's Lottery, and it's looking at intergenerational poverty and in Australia. And, um, yeah, when you say about um, collective action, I think, you know, potentially you could say there's some sort of a, a collective attitude that, that comes through the way we vote and the governments we have and, and things like that. And in the essay you point out that in Australia, and I actually had never done the numbers, that um, uh, 60 of the 90 years um, that we've we've um, had governments, sort of coalition or Labor Liberal type governments, we've yeah. voted conservative here in Australia. What, do you, what does that say about our attitudes um, and the way that comes through the ballot box? Well, I, I say in the essay that uh, almost every election is a referendum on taxation. That's what most elections are about, one way or the other. How much taxation are you willing to pay? Um, Australians pay uh, relatively little taxation by the nature of advanced economies. Um, about a, you know, less than a third of, of uh, GDP is going through government, all levels of government here. That's what's funded through taxes. So that puts us slightly above the slightly above the United States, but yeah, a long way north of most of Europe. Now, that's the choice. That's what the electorate um, prefers. It chooses governments that support that, um, that level of public expenditure, and that level of public expenditure in turn decides how much money is available for community-based services, for the sort of work that might help address poverty. So it's not surprisingly that countries with relatively low tax rates typically have higher levels of poverty. That's, you can see why that would follow. Um, so but I guess the point to say is uh, it's not to criticise, it's not to say, you know, this is wrong. This is what the Australian electorate consciously chooses over and over again. You don't get the same result for 60 out of 90 years without this being a fairly deliberate choice. So uh, this is an expression of what Australians value, and one of the challenges for those who would like to change outcomes is to think, well, within those parameters, what's possible? And there is a lot possible. It isn't just a matter of we need a change, you know, a political change to make a difference. We, we know what programs work. Um, we know what sort of interventions can make a difference in people's lives. And in getting better and smarter about how community, government, charities, foundations all work together is, I think, an important pathway to, to better outcomes. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you sort of talk about those possibilities and and knowing sort of what works, because we saw um, sort of in the midst of the lockdown um, last year some, you know, quite creative and, and very fast responses to a global health crisis that really, um, you know, at least for a time, uh, eroded some of those ideological and um, sort of political barriers that might generally prevent sort of a centre-right government from introducing things like, um, you know, effectively doubling the welfare payment and um, and a, a sort of a support package for people to, to keep their jobs at a sort of set rate um, to prevent mass people from, from sort of going in to unemployment. And I guess, um, you know, as you said earlier as well, there is no quick fix to these things. But do you see any hope or potential that could come out of the very rapid response we saw in the face of the coronavirus, which, of course, wasn't about necessarily long-term 
long-term change. The coalition said it was about sort of emergency measures to get us through the here and now. Do you see much potential yeah. in there for addressing this kind of quite complex, um, interconnected way that um, inequality and, and poverty is quite entrenched throughout Australian society? Oh, look, I think you capture it really nicely there. What we learned in COVID is just how much of a difference we can make. Think about uh, how impressive it was to see universal childcare made available. And through JobKeeper, through paying employers to keep people on, um, we discovered a much better way of responding than paying people to be unemployed and um, job seeker. So... Uh, you know, effectively, we introduced a form of universal basic income uh, as a temporary measure, but just transformational for the people who received it. We also lifted what was called New Start, now Job Seeker. We lifted the rate with a, a COVID supplement that actually took them over the poverty line. We lifted three quarters of a million Australians out of poverty through COVID. You know, there are a whole lot of Australians who were better off because we had the pandemic. Now, what is really important to me, at least, is I'm sure to many, is that we learn those lessons and we evaluate to find out what worked and what didn't. And we ask ourselves, what should we keep? What did we do here that was so valuable that we could we could keep it on? Because we could change the outcomes of people. COVID showed us we can be flexible and responsive. And particularly when we're non-ideological about, about programs, when we think about policy, without thinking it through the frame of sort of a particular political ideology, um, sometimes we find really useful things. And that's what I think COVID has, has revealed for us. Yeah, and you go into some examples of those, and I guess underlying you know, this essay is that the idea of, you know, do we have the will, even the, the idea that where there's a will, there's a way, but do we have the will to have a really tackle entrenched poverty, but you do find examples of um, different kinds of models really using that collective approach you spoke of earlier and focused on what's called collective impact. And I wonder if you could use an example of, of that so that, um, and really, I guess I'm, I'm curious, how common is it or how often are these are collective impact models used to this end in Australia? So it's quite a common model. We've been doing since the 1990s, at least you can think of examples, and I think we had some early pioneers like Noel Pearson and the KPL Partnerships Program. Collective impact is the idea of, uh, pretty much reflecting what I've just said, of governments, charities, uh, communities working together around a goal. And if I give you a practical example, uh, Our Place is a program based in Victoria, though hopefully going to go national. It uses the local primary school as the locus. So it, it puts into the primary school services, not just for the children, but for their parents, uh, health services, employment services, adult education, uh, and all centred on this sort of familiar and comfortable place, which is the local primary school. And our place, which started in Dubton, uh, which had been quite a prosperous suburb that where the factories had closed and lots of factory workers lost their jobs and it became a very difficult place, used the local Dalton College as, its, as the base to sort of try and rebuild the community by involving people. And one of the key lessons here is what works is when, instead of government providing services through the CES and through the... Um, government services are linked in with community services and brought together as one, in one place so there's a single point of access. Um, if you're relying on these services, you don't care whether they've been provided by the state, the Commonwealth, the local government or a charity. You just care about access and that they work for you. And this was much more focusing service delivery on the people who needed it rather than worrying about the organisational niceties of, of who's providing it, whose badge is on the front door. And the primary school was very useful at the base because people were comfortable being there, it was safe, it was familiar, uh, and um, it worked. So our place, which started in a single, with a single site, then went to 10 uh, places, and it's now going to go wider again. It's a nice example of everybody working together around a shared goal. It's made a difference in the lives of young people, very young people in disadvantaged communities, but it's recognised that if you're a young person in a disadvantaged community, you're also a member of a family, and whether your parents have access to services might also be a very important part of the outcomes for you. So it 
tries to draw these things together. You note sort of multiple times throughout this essay how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people experience, um, you know, particular yeah. and acute disadvantage in Australia, which I'm so sure would be of no surprise to our listeners. But one of the, I guess, greatest um, challenges or failures might be too strong a word, but has been, um, you know, over the past decade and a bit of the closing the gap policies to address um, uh, Indigenous disadvantage across a range of measures. And of course, there's been a close the gap reset, which appears to be drawing on some of those things that you just highlighted around community engagement yeah. and, and consultation and very much involving people in the process of, of developing policies to kind of help lift them out of, of these types of challenging situations. Um, where do you see that particular sort of policy area evolving? And, and I guess what would it take for us to learn the lessons of the past to better address these types of, of issues when we have kind of a, you know, a whole of government approach to it as we do with, with Close the Gap? Yes, it's a really important topic and also a complex one. And as a non-Indigenous person, uh, you know, you've got to be careful about being seen to prescribe what should happen for others. Uh, but so the things that I find really interesting in this space are where you've got Indigenous-led initiatives trying to make a difference and they, they lean to a community impact uh, approach. So uh, the Empowered Communities movement, which has empowered communities around Australia, uh, is all about uh, Indigenous people taking leadership. Uh, but in turn... Hello. That's my house. Uh, um, is about... Uh, I thought you were going uh, to introduce this to your, um, your neighbour then. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> uh, somebody just tossed something into my front yard because um, I'm standing outside talking to you and uh, you know, walked by and I just called them on it and asked them not to do that. Um, uh, so Indigenous communities taking control. Uh, the empowered communities are really exciting to look at. They're around the nation. They're both uh, regional and urban. Uh, and they are integration of services, working with government, delivering... Uh, uh, an outcome that, that works for for the you know for the people in the community rather than for government officials. The failure of the close the gap program must tell us that you know we've got to think again about how this works. Uh, and if that approach doesn't work, and that approach is well funded, it's not like the closing the gap programs don't have money and resources and don't have deeply committed people. And it's not like anyone wants them to fail. On the contrary, they're all you know, people working hard to get the outcomes. But if you're not getting the outcomes, then going back and thinking again about how you're going about it seems to me the best way for it. Well, thank you for um, speaking with us um, on um, on the Grapevine Glen and speaking yeah. about this essay. And um, thank you for writing a, a short essay too. I absolutely enjoyed it and could knock it off in one sitting, which I just, um, yeah, you had my attention the whole time. But it is really nice to be able to read something within an hour or so and um, really get such a, a deep um, picture of what's happening in Australia with regards to poverty. So I commend it to people. It's called On Life's Lottery and um, Glyn Davis is the author and has been our guest and it's been um, great speaking with you. Thank you. No, thank you very much for, for your interest and for reading it. I really appreciate it. And um, On Life's Lottery is part of a series and it's out through Hachette. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.